Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health features industry guests and panelists who explore topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Mindy McGrath, Vynamic's healthcare industry advisor. On this episode, we're looking at the topic of entrepreneurial methodologies and idea harvesting within healthcare organizations. As competitive pressures escalate in the search for value and new entrants come to the market offering disruptive solutions to try and address access, quality, cost, and improved consumer experience, opportunities exist within all healthcare organizations to adopt methodologies that can pave the way to future growth. And to help us dive into this topic, friend of Dynamic, Patrick Fitzgerald, President and CEO of TFC Ventures Group and a thought expert with Vynamic has joined us today. As a serial entrepreneur and Wharton lecturer, Patrick brings a unique perspective to entrepreneurial methodologies and their application in the healthcare system. His mission is to help companies, internal projects, and ideas become reality. Hey, Patrick, thanks for joining us today. Excited to be here. Thank you very much. So let's talk about healthcare and the industry as a whole, um, and entrepreneurship. We're in this healthcare system, right, where um, we've been experiencing, I would say, a tremendous amount of pressures that are focused on things like access and care, and just really trying to find new and innovative ideas that are going to change the way that healthcare is delivered, and to a certain degree, really upset the structural nature of healthcare. Um, what do you see as the opportunity for entrepreneurial methodologies to be adopted in an industry like this? Well, I, I hate to answer a question with a question, <laughs> but I have to. Um, when we think of all the great things about healthcare, what is the one negative that you would think about when you think about healthcare and how it's delivered? It's difficult. It's difficult and it's very, very slow. It's extremely slow. So entrepreneurial methodologies is probably the opposite, except for the difficult part. It is really, really hard to launch any idea in any industry. However, most often, the more successful entrepreneurs do it very, very quickly. So that marriage between that speed and that slowness uh, in healthcare, I think the entrepreneurial methodology of speed is super important. But oddly enough, there are a lot of uh, synergies in, in healthcare and entrepreneurship. Uh, frankly, healthcare is used to failure, right? I mean, sometimes... Surgeries don't work out, and things you try and different methodologies you try to cure a patient don't work out, from the common cold all the way to super serious surgeries. Entrepreneurs are used to that as well. You try, you test, and sometimes you fail. Um, but ultimately, I think uh, the biggest uh, barometer uh, and tool used is speed for, for entrepreneurship, and, and that's where this, uh, this new field, I think, is, is growing. So I'm curious because we, I would say in the last decade, right? We have seen just a tremendous number of startups um, or organizations that maybe were in other industries start up um, spinoffs, right, in, in the healthcare market. Why do you think, in general, like this whole idea of an entrepreneurial mindset is good for companies that are just starting in an industry that's always been considered really hard to break into? Well, healthcare, uh, let's just stick with one version of healthcare and say academic healthcare. That is a very process-oriented system. There is an organizational structure. You go to med school. You get a residency. There's these goalposts you hit. Um, that doesn't really work 
with entrepreneurship, right? That doesn't work with startups. Um, certainly you have goals, but it's not guaranteed that if you raise a certain amount of funding that uh, at some point you're going to have a guaranteed success. Not to say that's the same in medicine. Just because you get your residency doesn't mean you're automatically become a great doctor. Uh, but when I look at uh, why these startups have been so successful is they don't apply any of those rules. They don't apply any of the organizational structure. I mean, sure, they have some structure, but they don't apply the organizational structure that a healthcare organization that's been around for 100 years has. Anytime you come in with a new lens and outside perspective, in any industry, it's going to be valuable. I think we all agree on that. But especially in healthcare, when you have a system and a process in place, and it's been so forever, to have these early stage young companies say, well, that's great, that's worked to some degree, uh, but now let's look at it from a different lens without all the weight of, in the example of academic healthcare, of all the degrees and certifications and all the things you need to get just to even start get to the, to the starting line. So if you think about the structure of our system, right, it wasn't really ever oriented to be built with the consumer at the middle, right? Never. No, and, right. It, like you just think about even our claims process and how backwards that is. But it's interesting to me to see some of these startups jumping in and trying to fill in gaps and kind of disrupt areas that have long been kind of immersed in a certain way of doing things. And they're like, well, we think there might be a better way to do this and also make it more consumer oriented. Yeah. And, and let's look at um, one of the biggest ones in the news recently. I mean, I can't think of a pharmaceutical delivery innovation in 150 years since since drugs were first created. Uh, you had to go to a pharmacist. You had to get in your car. You had to drive. There was no technology to help you monitor when you're taking it. Um, and then along comes a company like PillPack. Mm -hmm. Now, they were not the first ones to try this. There was a lot of different um, – how do you deliver pharmacy and drugs in a way that's consumer-friendly? Uh, PillPack raised a fair amount of money, and they went through a lot of different hurdles. But at the end of the road there, they really transformed that industry. And again, going from that outside perspective, now Amazon owns PillPack. So uh, you can see how that outside lens has been very, very valuable. For me, the question about PillPack becomes like, how does PillPack take those those sets of core strengths that Amazon has always been able to establish and, and really build that out in something that's going to feel very unique and different for a consumer in the healthcare market. And then if, if you look at uh, what Amazon, one of Amazon's core strengths is not only delivering great products and now delivering pharmacy tools, but is data. Mm -hmm. So with that information, with PillPack, with that information of when people are taking their medications, hopefully using AWS, Amazon is considering ways to help work with pharma to figure out better medications, better delivery methods, better times to recommend people to take the medication. Uh, all that is hidden in the data that uh, is probably underneath what Amazon is working on now. Exactly, exactly. So you mentioned pharma companies, and I'd like to pivot a little bit to talk more about entrenched organizations. So health systems, health plans, life sciences companies, they're all facing really significant competitive pressures. How would you apply this idea of entrepreneurial methodologies to these types of organizations that have really been steeped in this is the way we do things um, for a while? And, and what would you say would be their case for adoption? So we talked at the top about speed and the opportunity for speed to be applied, and that's, that's one facet. The other thing I would focus on is an apolitical, 
unbureaucratic approach. Right now in these organizations, again, there's processes and systems in place. But thinking about an entrepreneurial methodology where you go around those systems, go right to, this, right to the top, right to the CEO with a really great idea, a really new concept and project, instead of having to go sort of up the ladder, so to speak. Um, you asked about the case, case for adoption. If entrenched organizations are not thinking about this today at a C-level and board-level perspective, they will not be around in 20 years. And that's not just my opinion. I would argue that most CEOs have that same opinion and are pushing that through their board and their organization. And so do you see um, these entrenched organizations kind of readily adopting these types of methodologies? Um, or no. are you having to <laughs> convince them? No, they, they are fighting it tooth and nail. Okay. So uh, again, really big, slow-moving organizations. A lot of people have spent a lot of money getting a lot of degrees and accreditations in these organizations with the expectation of a financial return, of a way of doing business that they were raised in over a course of 20 or 30 years, um, things are moving a lot quicker now. So I, I, I would argue that while that case for adoption is high, the actual efficacy and moving forward is still very, very, very slow. So how, from your perspective in doing this for a while, how do you how do you convince them or motivate them that they have to adopt entrepreneurial methodologies? Because if they stay still, they'll stagnate. So you would look at a, a bottoms-up approach or a top-down approach. And look, a bottoms-up approach, the masses rise up and say, we're sick of doing things the same way for 30, 40, 50 years. We're not going to do anything more until you change that. And that's one approach. I think what we're seeing now is more of a C-level driven approach where the CEO says, I can't guarantee an outcome. I don't know if we're going to have the best, most exciting startup spin out of this organization. But I do know I'm willing to test and try and push that through. So the ones that have been more successful have been the ones where the CEO says, this is what we're doing. I don't have all the answers, but I'm willing to test and try. Uh, the benefits, I think, are quite clear. From an employee engagement perspective, if you have a CEO that says, listen, we're going to try these new technologies or these, we're going to bring in these outside people who are very focused on entrepreneurship, that's exciting. People watch Shark Tank. They get excited about that kind of stuff. Yes, they do. Um, so whether or not things become a reality is a very, very different story. But just on the baseline, when you have a CEO who says, today is a new day and we're doing a new form of looking for new ideas and new projects and concepts, uh, I think that's very empowering for any organization to have a CEO say that. Yeah, and it reminds me a little bit of what we're seeing in the healthcare market around design thinking, right? Like this whole idea of we don't know if there will be an outcome, but we're going to try to scope a problem or an opportunity that provides more utility to the end user. And we may get negative feedback, we may get positive feedback, but we have to do it. And, and there's, I think there's a very good connection there to that's how things are done in healthcare right now. Mm -hmm in terms of research, right? So you have PhD researchers who, they do not know the outcome, but they do know what the end goal is. And to some degree, they only have one goal, which is either to find the solution or publish a very interesting, exciting research paper. What we want to do is kind of come in and say, well, that's one outcome to find the solution. And the other outcome of publishing a really interesting, unique research paper is only one option. 
what if it could become a company? What if we could not necessarily uh, keep our information or our solutions secret, but what if we could actually rapidly deploy them across the globe in a commercial form? And that is a very, very new concept for researchers and PhDs who are usually heads down focused on a small or sometimes big problem with the expectation that a research lab will be built or a paper will be published or a degree will be conferred, et cetera. Um, when, we come, when we come in, we, we try to look at it as there's other different options that may actually benefit society. Mm-hmm. And as you were talking about this, one of the other things that popped into my mind is the whole idea of like cultural revel- relevance. So when you think about these entrenched organizations, right, have done things in a certain way, have had structure to their organizations and process. I mean, I also think about the cultural overlay that you have to consider perhaps changing or adjusting in order to enable this type of mindset to really take root in an organization. Yeah, it's um, an example that I look at when you think about the willingness to adopt and sort of the cultural adoption to hear from all parties. Uh, oddly enough, Doritos uh, is a good example. <laughs> the Flaming Dorito, which is like their most popular Dorito, was found by the janitor. Right, the janitor had a basic, found a basic chip, brought it home, put some spices on it, uh, brought it in. Somehow got to the CEO and said, "We need to try this as a new product," and is now they're one of the most popular products in healthcare. I, I, that's really hard to think about how that sort of openness and uh, innovation can happen in healthcare a lot. Now, it does happen every day in the, in the, in the heat of the moment uh, when, you're, when you're in the ER, those kind of things happen. There's a lot of MacGyvers in the ER. Right. Uh, but do they actually become a business line after that? That's where sometimes things get stopped. To me, it's such an interesting challenge in this industry because of the way everything's been structured for so long and so much opportunity to try to pull that through. So question for you, one of the things that you talked about is um, helping internal projects and ideas become reality. So you talk a little bit about how difficult that is in healthcare. In your mind though, how does it show up or how should it show up and what level of the organization should this show up in? So hopefully it shows up in all levels of the organization. Um, I always like to point to even the you know accounting department or the legal department or organization. I'd love to hi- hear ideas from them. Because uh, oftentimes people say, well, they have a very specific set job to do in healthcare. Right, but there's a lot of finance that goes into healthcare. There's a lot of accounting systems that go into healthcare. If we just say, you guys don't have any good ideas, you're only the accountants, then I don't know, n- nothing's really going to change. But if you go across the entire organization, go to nurses, go to researchers, go to janitors, go to accountants, go to the lawyers, um, what are new and different ways we can build our business better? And again, to your earlier point, that are more consumer friendly. If you don't open the doors to everybody, you're not going to find those diamonds in the rough. You're just not. So um, my hope is that we come in, into an organization we're able to kind of open the doors for everybody who's working on anything um, and people who haven't even thought that they have an opportunity to explore a new idea. So I'm going to put you on the spot here and ask you, there's a lot of healthcare organizations in the marketplace that are experiencing success. They would argue that their growth is really solid that their their profits are strong. What makes gathering and accelerating ideas valuable to them? So we're always looking for the diamonds in the rough, right? There are millions of people who are working on really cool, unique, interesting healthcare ideas. But 
if you think of a healthcare organization and all the expertise and all the smarts and all the degrees, um, I look at a corollary example and I look at a place, uh, all, all the big banks in the world, and I say, you can't tell me that those organizations didn't have a Venmo built into those organizations or someone had that idea. And take that outside to healthcare, right? PillPack, as we discussed earlier, that probably should have been discovered or thought of or uncovered at a large healthcare organization, not by two guys who don't have any healthcare experience, right. who don't have the regulatory experience, who don't have the process experience. Um, you can see why they were successful. You could say that maybe because they came from the outside. But what we're trying to do is say, because you have that expertise, because you have that knowledge, it's it's in the walls, it's in the notebooks, it's in the fo folders, um, it's in the Slack channels, it's there. You have to allow it to be pulled out. Um, and that's where you're going to find the early stage unique technologies, the diamonds in the rough, if you will. You're, you're going to find a lot of bad stuff too uh, that's irrelevant or redundant. Um, and you have to be willing to say, no, we're not doing that again. We're not trying that idea. We've tried it 10 times and it doesn't work. Um, but ultimately, I think it's, it's hidden in there. Tell me a little bit about roadblocks. So idea generation starts, maybe it starts from the bottom up, or maybe it starts at the, the sea level, and an organization is, is really gung-ho about this whole idea of like employing an entrepreneurial mindset. What kind of roadblocks would you expect them to run into as they maybe try to pull this through in an organization? Well, five, five or six years ago, I would say data uh, privacy was a major concern and a major issue. It still is, but there are a lot of technologies that are put in place to help ensure privacy. Notice I said help, but not necessarily guarantee. So we think about software. Um, that was that used to be an issue. Is yeah, but everybody's health record is very, very private, and we want to keep it private. So we can't innovate. We can't try new things. New things. Because the minute we do, we're going to expose everyone's is data. I think to some degree that has been uh, softened, that blow, and I think that's that's not necessarily as much of a roadblock. Uh, legal is still a big roadblock, right? Should we actually be doing this? Is this in our core mission? Should, are we legally allowed to do this, uh, especially with nonprofit healthcare systems? Um, can they legally think about the tax implications of spinning out a new comp, uh, a new co? Uh, there's uh, unrelated business income tax, which is a jargony word for saying, why is a healthcare company taking public dollars, spinning out a company? Shouldn't all that money go back to the public, so to speak? So that uh, you can get around those things in, in a very uh, rational and, and legal way, but that's, that's always one. Um, cultural, we talked about this earlier. Uh, if, if you were raised in a certain environment where, um, you know, the, the head of surgery is king and you know, God, a queen, and God above all. Um, it's very hard sometimes to say, but hey, I'm this new resident. I have this brand new idea. Can anybody hear me? And the head of surgery says no. Typically, that means no. Uh, so that, that's one, that, that cultural issue. Also, just the incentives. What are the incentives in an organization? Most uh, researchers talking just specifically about uh, academic health centers uh, and also sometimes uh, big pharma, the incentives are aligned to publish your research. Really get that paper out there. And that's that's great for the world. Um, but if you have entrepreneurs saying, but wait a minute, I don't remember you know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs 
sitting down together and saying, hey, let me tell you what I'm working on. And, and Steve Jobs said, let me tell you what I'm working on. Uh, to some degree, they didn't really do that, right? They, they operated in their own in departments and built their own companies. So that, that is a big uh, hurdle. And then frankly, uh, most organizations uh, do not have entrepreneurs and residents, startups, people who have that sort of brain and training uh, inside the organization. Based on those roadblocks, what's one piece of advice you'd give to healthcare leaders that are interested in entrepreneurship methodology? Can I give two? Absolutely. All you can right. give three if you'd like. Because um, I want to I counteract the, the roadblocks and talk about the different ways that this could actually be successful. So one would be um, really focus on an outside-in approach, right? So um, try to have people on the outside coming in to work with your internal experts, right? Because you guys are the experts. But let's have somebody come in from an outside perspective who's focused on entrepreneurship, focused on potentially spinning out companies. And that's the other uh, piece of advice, the word potentially. I wouldn't guarantee as a leader that, hey, we're going to deploy these methodologies and we're going to find five new amazing startup companies every single year. Uh, there, there are no guarantees in, in my world uh, as it relates to entrepreneurship and startups. So be very cautious when you're putting that message out there. We're going to do this outside-in approach and we're going to find you know 10 amazing new companies. I don't know if that's a reality. The third is a willingness to fail. Some of these ideas, we're going to take them to the finish line and they may not work. Um, so that willingness to fail, the outside-in approach, um, and have optimism, but no sort of hard-line guarantees that you have to achieve. Well, Patrick, thank you for joining us on Trending Health. I appreciate you carving out some time. Um, would love you. to have you back in the future. Continuing this episode on entrepreneurial methodology and idea harvesting, I'm joined by my dynamic colleagues, Chris Nagovin, Health Tech Sector Advisor, Sean Martin, an executive at Vynamic, and Mike Catone, a director at Vynamic, and our innovation enthusiast. So that was a great discussion with Patrick. Um, I think back to the numerous podcasts that we've had on topics about design thinking and about innovation and their application in the healthcare industry. And now we're diving into the idea of entrepreneurial methodology and idea harvesting and its application in healthcare. One of the things that struck me that Patrick said um, that I wanted to chat about with you guys is um, in searching for innovative ideas, he mentioned the idea that if you don't open the doors to everybody, you're not going to find these diamonds in the rough. And given the often, I think, siloed and, and fragmented nature of healthcare organizations, what do you think they need to do to maximize the reach of their entrepreneurial activities? Well, I think one thing that organizations should be doing is obviously investing in a little bit of training and um, communication to the organization of why this is ultimately being entrepreneurial is important to the business and what value that it drives um, and, and really helping move employees along that change curve of corporate entrepreneurship or corporate uh, entrepreneurship. Um, that's one thing, just to build that co cohesive um, organ organizational cohesion, cohesion that I think that organizations need to do. Where my mind goes is uh, just simple tools and frameworks that organizations can use to crowdsource ideas. Um, all ideas are, are good and they want to hear them. So uh, where we've seen organizations 
foster these ideas is through crowdsourcing tools that allow ideation campaigns um, and then also allow the, the crowd to, to vote on them. When I think about how organizations seek those ideas, I, I, I do hear, you know, Sean, what you're talking about where they're coming up with different frameworks and funnels to get ideas um, into the, the innovation cycle. But I think one thing that's really important is the organizational attitude toward failure in any of these entrepreneurship activities. And it needs to be really communicated and lived uh, within the organization about how they view failure. They're very risk averse traditionally, and that often translates directly into an aversion toward failure. And in my experience, if you don't let people fail, it's very hard to see them succeed. If you don't give people the room or opportunity to think about and even run with crazy ideas that, that might not work, um, it's going to make them a little more hesitant to, to speak up and to think about something um, innovative. And I think that you know, we judge failure uh, often in, in very directly in just whatever product or service uh, comes from a, an, an entrepreneurial or innovation cycle. But I think there are different outputs, like key insights that you get on customers or groups of stakeholders that your problem is associated with that can be positive outcomes, even if the overall project or recommended product was deemed a failure. So I think just how the organization views failure needs to be clearly communicated uh, to make everyone comfortable with submitting these ideas and really thinking outside the box. Yeah, Mike, and that's such a good point. I think the other piece that, that stuck out to me was this whole idea of agility and speed, right? Not getting lost within the framework of an organization because um, that's where ideas go to get stuck. Um, so that was another aspect of it. As you were talking about failure, I was also thinking speed, right? It's almost like going around the, the confines of the organization to try to drive ideas. Yeah, if we take one from like the startup uh, community out there, uh, you know, agility is so important. They startups need to to pivot multiple times in the the growth of a new idea. They need to launch. They need to iterate. They need to do it in a in a very nimble and agile way. So, it uh, really applies to any new idea or new process or or new creative solution to a problem that might be emerging within an organization. I think it starts with with the culture, making sure that you're curating the right culture to embrace risk. And, uh, and and embrace failure, um, and then and then really embracing that that agility from the the startup community as well, um, and pulling that through the organization. And I'm wondering when you think about certain sectors in healthcare, right? There is probably an additional roadblock to this idea of like entrepreneurship, um, because the reality is they operate on typical, you know, very razor thin types of margins. So how do you see some healthcare organizations overcoming the fiscal reality and embracing a willingness to fail when the willingness to fail could actually cost them margin that's really critical to them? So if you want to, if you want to encourage people to test out ideas and not be afraid to fail, um, you need to equip them with the skills that allow them to fail quickly. 
And I don't just mean from a time period perspective. I mean from a manpower perspective. I mean from a product development period perspective. You need to have them teach them to be able to find ways to test ideas with target customers, target users, different partners before they sink lots of time, money, and manpower in them. If you don't do that, uh, then what you'll be left with is sort of the business as usual where you, know, you, you become afraid to fail because you don't want to work on something for six months and then have it be a failure. It, it's a lot easier if you work on a project for three weeks, go test it out with a few users, realize that there isn't a lot of merit in it, and you say, well, uh, that's unfortunate. We learned X, Y, and Z, but we don't think we have a spot. We don't think we have a play in this market. But you didn't spend half a year. You didn't have employees and team members aligning goals and development goals to the success or failure of this of this project. So I, I think if organizations teach that it's that it's okay to fail as long as you fail in a in a smart way, you're not just firing a hundred different ways and wasting years on, on these ideas that might not have any merit. Um, then that's how you can kind of allay some of those fears around this is going to eat into our margin or this is going to take up too much of your time. Mike, yeah, I think you're, you're spot on. I think um, oftentimes you see um, kind of big frameworks and bureaucratic processes in place to allow for, um, you know, all the data to come in and some rich, you know, research behind it before funding or projects can proceed. And I think the sweet spot for the entrepreneurial idea process is more to um, the nimble, flexible, creative side of um, giving an idea room to flourish without all of the extra weight around it so that in two, three weeks' time, you can have kind of a gut reaction with some loose framework around it to make that decision. I think that's kind of that sweet spot where um, quite often it's used to the rigors of a large project, and, and this is not that, right? So. Um, the uh, large project concepts don't apply here, and I think it's getting away from those, which allow for ideas to quickly progress and quickly get to a decision. It reminds me of some of the sprint activity that we've talked about before, Mike, in the context of design thinking. That there's elements of that, is like trying to get to the the next gate quickly. Yeah, it's, it's some level of discipline, right? You, you want to avoid those situations where resources are applied too quickly. And to, to, to Mike's earlier point, you get to the end and you've created a solution without a problem or you've created a solution that really your, your customers don't, don't appreciate as much. It's, it's having some, some level of stage gates or, or, or um, you know, these, the sprint methodology that you mentioned um, is, it provides the right level of, of structure and rigor without applying resources too quickly. Yeah, another thought that comes to my mind is when I've seen organizations do this successfully, um, they, they bake this into the portfolio management process, but give it a little bit of a, an easy pass lane, right? So um, quite oftentimes you've got your, your, your budgets and business planning, um, allocations packed and jammed for the year. And when cool new ideas come up that can really uh, benefit the organization, it's often deferred. Um, what I've seen is uh, organizations allow for the, this type of concept to be there, to plan for the unplanned work, to plan for the new ideas that could really be game changers and give that space in the budget to allow us to put some sort of investment and some sort of resources to it so that when these things come up, it's not hey, everybody's tapped out, everybody's already you know, multi-assigned to these projects, 
there is some room for it and they are expecting it and they can actively manage it. Moving on, I wanted to ask you about your reaction to Patrick's suggestion that healthcare organizations take an outside-in approach when searching for and building out entrepreneurial efforts. And what do you think these organizations should look for in an innovation partner? So to me, one of the biggest benefits of taking an outside-in approach is that when you're engaging with a partner that has done work like this previously, they're often bringing lessons from that previous work to each new partner that they're working with. I know me personally, um, the way my work is currently structured, I'm running basically mini sprint, design sprint projects within one of our large clients. And it's just a constant repertoire building exercise internally. I start to understand how the teams work together at this organization. And I start to understand how these ideas get traction, lose traction. And that's something where, you know, I continue to take it into my everyday work and I'm continually building that. So when you look at an organization that has experience in, in facilitating this kind of change within or an organization, they're coming in with all of that specific experience. And there are also additional benefits where you don't necessarily have political alliances inside of an organization that you may run into if you're taking an inside approach. Um, there may not be any sacred cows uh, that, that folks would run into within an organization. Um, nothing, you know, it, it might be easier to, to change or tweak some of those untouchables um, that an organization might put up on a pedestal. Um, and, you know, the, the last thing that I really think about is uh, taking an outside-in approach um, might allow that outside partner to see an obvious solution that the internal team just never really thought about because they either took it as business as usual or they thought, well, this was a, a part of the market or a marketing condition that there was no way we could change it, we couldn't alter it. Um, and, and if you take that outside approach, uh, you know, you, you really are able to um, basically go in without any of those biases or pre preconceived notions that might hamper an organization. Yeah, that's a good point, Mike. Um, some of the things that kind of come to my mind are, um, I, I think a lot of times the the willingness and fear to go through some of the barriers um, to challenge you know, the way we've always done it um, exist. And for, for one reason or another, um, folks have the, hey, this doesn't make sense type of concept, and, and I, I think we can do it better. Um, but there, there may be some barriers that kind of keep those um, I guess, willingness to challenge the way we've always done it internal, right? And so I think a lot of times you, you have a facilitation process, like you mentioned, that allows um, an unbiased kind of third party kind of walk through some of those barriers and hit them head on. It's not avoiding them. It's like, okay, I've seen, I've seen this work and here's some perspective. Here's the pros and cons where I think a lot of times that may get um, squashed down because of the fear of um, challenging the norm or some of the political uh, barriers that may exist. Um, for some for some reason, the uh, the ideas are often there, but ability to navigate uh, in an organizationally agnostic way is difficult at times. Even this taking an outside in approach, uh, I think, even extends into a, a recruiting. Uh, strategy as well. Yes, partnerships, uh, partners will certainly bring that perspective internal uh, to, to your organization. But, you know, what 
are there are there people out there if you're going to start an innovation strategy or innovation program or uh, are there people out there uh, in different industries or markets who you should be recruiting to bring that outside perspective in and it does a couple of things it's it's obviously bringing the perspective in but also to to help drive if if there is a culture shift or culture change that you need to make it within the organization making that person part of that kind of evolution within the organization, helping that person connect and that those experience connect to the, the, the rest of, of the people in your organization. Um, you know, maybe thinking about rotational programs of, of other divisions within your organization coming into this, this new um, innovative group that's creating because you've got to spread the, the thinking and the knowledge and the way of, of being agile and, and entrepreneurial. Um, it's, it's something that evolves over time. So creating certain, uh, programs like that to kind of share those learnings would be, would be good. When I think about the challenges though, um, of that outside in, you know, we're in a really very highly regulated market. Um, and, and that is often one of the reasons that the folks within the organization aren't willing to fail or aren't willing to take risk. Um, and so it's really important to think about um, who, are, who, who owns some of that risk, whether it's compliance or finance or some of these support organizations within, within your, your company. How can you engage them early on in the process so that you can um, make them and have their concerns kind of um, layered down through the process of your, your developing a new, new offering or new idea? Um, it's, you know, in this, in this regulated market, it's really important to, to consider those stakeholder points of view because it's not going to change overnight for healthcare. No, it certainly won't, but there is, seems to be a burning platform for most healthcare organizations to figure it out, especially when you start to see new entrants coming into the market. We were talking about PillPack, right? And the fact that PillPack was founded by two gentlemen with no pharma experience, they were technologists that saw an opportunity. And, and I think to Patrick's point, that idea probably was germinating somewhere in a large organization and just never made its way through the organizational barriers, right, to be creative. Yeah, Mindy, that's a, that's a great point. And that kind of resonated with something else that I love that Patrick uh, was, was focused on, which was really thinking about the customer um, of whatever solution or innovation project. Uh, I, I know that Many, many loyal listeners of the podcast will know me as the guy who never stops talking about the user. Um, and I think that you know my experience within design thinking has really cemented that. Uh, but it's interesting to me when he's talking about PillPack, um, anyone who has worked in life sciences uh, has, has heard of comorbidities or has heard of uh, medications that um, – are common between disease conditions. And I think, you know, w with all the talk about different, uh, you know, patient profiles where they're taking several different kinds of medications, um, to think that no one had ever thought of bundling those medications together and delivering them to their customers, I, I just think that's, there's, there's no way that that was never discussed. Uh, it just had to be out there. So I, I do think, like, to Patrick's point, there are these great ideas out there and organizations, um, they just need to, uh, orient themselves in such a way to source them, like Sean was talking about, test them, and then figure out how they, they work uh, within their existing business structure or it's something worth spinning off or, or selling. Um, so that, I just wanted to add that because that was such an interesting um, way to look at it. Absolutely was. So this wraps up our episode, and I would like to thank our Dynamic panel for joining us today. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in this episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune in to the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.